Well, this is what happens when grown men play little boys' games. <laughs> Someone had a piece of paper taped on my stool here that said, Reserve for Reverend Gimp. <laughs> Just no respect for elders around here. Someone asked me if, uh, because I'm sitting down now, my sermons are going to be shorter. And uh, I told them that, no, now that I sit down, I have on, almost endless endurance. So I, uh, I really appreciated Dave's uh, song a moment ago. I've come to know Dave and Mitzi quite well over the past six months. And uh, it reminded me of, of a friend of mine as he was singing. And his name is Bob Young, who now is with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship in Latin America. Just a great guy. When I first uh, met Bob, he was a, a graduate student, a doctoral student in a university on the West Coast, and uh, he's just a brilliant uh, young man. And um, he was working on his degree, and he took his orals and um, went in to uh, talk to his advisor and was told that he failed them primarily because of his... Uh, Christian worldview, that they just couldn't uh, couldn't accept it, and uh, he flunked out of the program. And as he was, as this man was telling him that he had had failed to pass, his first thought, of course, was uh, the fact that he had invested about twenty thousand dollars in four years of his life in this program. But then he thought of the words of that song: "I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather have Jesus than riches untold." I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords. And it just struck him as funny, and he laughed out loud. And his advisor thought that he cracked, and he ran out in the front, and he got his secretary and brought, him, brought her in, and they were going to usher him down to the, to the infirmary. But uh, he just assured them everything was all right, and it didn't matter. And he explained why he had, why he had laughed. But that really puts things in perspective. When we, when we realize that what we really need in this world and what gives worth and value and satisfaction to us is the Lord Jesus and nothing else, really. And it just leads right into the passage that we want to talk about this morning. Genesis 22. We've been looking at the life of Abraham over the past few months, this great giant of a man one who sustained a, a historic impact upon the world. There's never really been anyone like him apart from the Lord Jesus. And yet, as we've seen, the man himself was not particularly significant. He was just an ordinary sort of man, a caravaneer, a, a trucker, and uh, not necessarily prepared for this task, this historic task of bringing blessing to the world. And yet a man that God called out and to whom he gave his resources and uh, gave him an almost impossible task, and yet he gave him everything that he needed to fulfill the task that was given to him. And now we come in chapter 2 to a great crisis in Abram's life. As you, as you view his life and the events of his life, there's no question that this event is the most significant event in his life because it reveals the character of Abraham. 
in a way that none of the other circumstances of his life reveal it. Let's begin with verse 1 of chapter 22. Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. Now the things which he refers to here in chapter in verse 1 are the things that are described in chapter 21. We're told in chapter 21 that three things occurred that were very significant in Abraham's life. The first was the birth of his son, Isaac, in verses 1 through 6. That's the son he'd been looking for for the past 25 years. When Abraham was 75 years old, God promised that he would have a son. And through that son, he would make his name great. And throughout those long years, Abram waited. There were some laps, lapses of faith, but that was... That was the uh, the promise that God had made, and Abraham believed that God would fulfill that promise. And finally, after waiting, because delay is always a part of God's plan, he received the promise. And Sarah said in verse 6, God has made me laugh. He brought joy into her life through that, that young man, and so she named him Isaac. Yitzhak means laughter, because God had given her joy. And then in verses 8 through 21, we have a description of the, uh, of the ejection of, of Hagar and Ishmael from the family. And this in itself was not a happy occasion for Abraham because he loved this boy as well. But, but the circumstances were arranged in such a way that, that it was obvious that God was going to protect Isaac, uh, protect Ishmael as well as Isaac, and would make a great nation of him as well. And uh, using a play on Ishmael's uh, name, in verse 17, we read that God heard the lad crying. Uh, Ishmael's name means God hears, and God heard him, and he provided for his needs as well. So that brought joy to Abraham's heart. And then in verses 22 through 34, you have a description of of a treaty that Abram made with the Philistines. He was living down in the Negev, the southern part of Palestine where the Philistines were, and, and he arranged a treaty with Phicol, the commander of Abimelech's army. Verse 22, it came about at that time that Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, spoke to Abraham saying, God is with you in all that you do. The Philistines realized that Abraham was a remarkable man because God was with him. And these tough old soldiers from, from Greece, men who had fought in the Trojan War, recognized that there was something significant about Abraham and his faith and his God. And Abraham began to sustain the sort of impact that God told him he would have on the nation of Canaan, on the, on the land of Canaan. So there was blessing in Abraham's life. He had a son and he had security. And things were going well for him. And then in verse 33, there is a new revelation of the character of God. And Abraham planted a tamarisk tree at Beersheba. And there he called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. Uh, earlier in chapter 17, we're told that, that God was revealed to Abraham under the name El Shaddai. 
in verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said to him, The Lord God, oh, I am the Lord God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. And uh, the word doesn't mean so much almighty as it means God who is sufficient. God who is adequate for you. El Shaddai, the, the word shad comes from the Hebrew word for breast. And it's a picture of the God who nourishes and cares for our needs and provides for us in every way. He's the God who is sufficient, the God who sustains. And that Abraham knew. But now he has a new revelation of the character of God. He is the everlasting God. He is the God who is always sufficient. He never changes. Even though circumstances change, God doesn't. We have a way of looking at circumstances, and when they become bleak, we think God is angry with us, or God has turned away from us. He's forgotten us, but that's not so. He's the God who's always adequate. And he will either change our circumstances, or he will provide what we need to go through the circumstances. And this new revelation of God was what prepared Abraham for the test that he was to experience. And so he speaks to Abraham in a vision of the night. When Abraham went to sleep that night, he had no idea that his life would change so radically. He went to sleep at peace, in peace. He had a son. He had security. He just felt warm and comfortable. But, you know, it's not God's primary intention to keep us comfortable. He wants us to grow up. That's, that's far more important to God than our comfort. And he will very frequently take our comfortable circumstances away to teach us that what we need is God and God alone and nothing else. And so the Lord said in verse 2, Take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. It's almost as though he's rubbing it in. Take your son, not Ishmael, your only son, your own son, your unique son, the son of the promise, Isaac, the one whose name means laughter, the one whom you love, and offer him up. Jesus says in, in Matthew 10 that we're not to love father or mother or husband or wife or son or daughter more than him. And uh, that's difficult for us to understand. He's not saying we're not to love mother and father or son or daughter. It's a, it's a matter of comparison. Whom do we love more? He's to have the first place in our life. And that's why he's testing Abraham. He wants to see if Abraham loves God more than anything else in the world. Now, God tests us to make us, to make us men and women, to fulfill us. Now, that's different from a test or a temptation, rather. God doesn't tempt. He only tests. It's Satan who tempts. The same circumstance can be both a, tempt, a temptation and a test, depending upon the way we look at it and our response to it. For instance, uh, let's say you get up tomorrow morning to go to work, 
and it's one of those mornings when nothing goes very well, and uh, you have an important appointment that you have to make at 9 o'clock. It's uh, a business uh, deal that you have to close, and it's important that you be there, and so you go out to start your car, and your car will not start. Now, that's just a circumstance. It's a contrary car. But that circumstance is either a test or a temptation depending upon how you look at it. Satan intends that circumstance to be a temptation to sin, to draw you away to, to sin, to get angry and lose your temper and kick the car or give way to despair or go in and get angry at your family or whatever. That's a temptation. But God intends that same circumstance to be a test to teach you to depend on him, to rest in him and his resources and his ability, and to realize that God has some purpose in all of this for you. Instead of getting angry, to believe him. And thus, our faith, you see, is strengthened. Now, that's what God is doing with Abram. He's, he's strengthening his faith through this test. He's not trying to draw him away to sin because God doesn't tempt us, but he does bring into our lives circumstances that are designed to make us trust him and him alone instead of things or people. And so he tells Abram to take his son and sacrifice him at Mount Moriah. We know from other passages of Scripture that Mount Moriah is the, was the location of the temple uh, mound. That was where the threshold of Aranya was, which David bought for the temple, and the temple was later located on that very spot. If you go to Jerusalem today and you go down under the mosque, uh, in the center of the mosque there's a large uh, rock. It's the top of Mount Moriah, still there. And apparently that's the place where Abraham was to sacrifice Isaac. Now, I'm sure when Abraham heard these words, he simply thought that this was what uh, his relationship to God had come to. Remember, we're talking about a man who lived 4,000 years ago. He, did, he didn't have the revelation of God that we have in the New Testament. And he probably thought, well, that's, it's come to this. Now I have to offer up my firstborn like all the other nations surrounding me. Child sacrifice was, was characteristic of all the religions of that time. And Abraham thought, well, that's, that's what it's come to. God wants me to offer up my firstborn. And so without any question, he begins to make preparations for the, the sacrifice of his son. He's going to put to death the one that he had based all of his hopes in, the one that would make his name great. So Abraham rose early in the morning. It's characteristic of, of Abraham to face a hard thing resolutely. He didn't put it off. He rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac, his son, and he split wood for the offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. He rose very early in the morning before anyone else was up in the family. Perhaps he didn't even tell Sarah because this was an issue between Abraham and God. It had to be worked out in the privacy of his own heart, and he made the decision. He, he had decided at this point he was going to obey no matter what it cost him. He was going to put to death his hope. And uh, 
He began to make preparations alone, saddled up his donkey, gathered the wood, began to split it, took his splitting maul out, began to split the wood, and with every stroke he realized that that was the wood on which his son would be sacrificed. And on the third day, Abraham raised his hands and saw the place from the distance. Beersheba is only about 50 miles from Jerusalem. They're traveling slowly. Abraham was 100 years old. The boy was probably in his early teens, and they were traveling slowly to the north. And finally, they reached the site of Mount Moriah. And Abraham said to his young men, Stand here with the don- Stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go yonder. And we will worship, and we will return to you. That's an amazing statement, because in both cases, the subject of the sentence is plural. We will go worship, and we will return. Now, Abraham did not know what God would do. He had no idea how God would solve this problem. He just knew that God had promised that he would make of him a great nation, and and that it would be through the son Isaac that all of the promises would be fulfilled, and he did not know how God would provide, but he knew that he had to follow through with what God told him to do. He had to obey no matter what it cost him and let God take the consequences. And that's why the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 11, he reckoned, he believed, he had convinced himself, literally, he had made up his mind that God was able to raise him from the dead if necessary. He didn't know how God would do it. He just knew God would do it. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and he laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire, the torch, and the knife, the sacrificial knife. So the two of them walked on together. You know, I wonder what Abraham and Isaac talked about as they traveled north from Beersheba and as they walked up the mountain together. Yesterday, Randy and I drove from Boise up to uh, uh, Daystar. And we had a couple of hours both ways in the car alone, and and we just chattered away. I hadn't, hadn't seen Randy for three months, and, and we just had a great time talking. And I thought, while we were driving up there together, what if I knew that I was going to uh, McCall to sacrifice my son? What would I talk about? How would I respond to him? Isaac didn't know, and like any young man, he was probably chattering away, and, and how would Abraham respond? Verse 7, And Isaac spoke to Abraham his father and said, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Many times Isaac and Abraham had walked together to sacrifice for the family. Abraham was the patriarch, the high priest of his family, and he offered up sacrifices for that family. And many times they had gone through this this uh, procedure. But today there was something missing. There was no lamb. And Isaac, of course, knew that something was wrong. And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And that's the key to this whole section. God will take care of it. I don't know how God's going to solve this problem, son, but God will provide. He will see to it, literally. That's the sort of confidence that Abraham had in God. Here's an impossible circumstance. 
but Abraham believed that God could provide. So the two of them walked on together. Then they came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. It's characteristic of Scripture to, to be so succinct about events, but you can read between the lines as Abraham begins slowly to gather the rocks for this altar and place one rock upon another and then lay the wood for the sacrifice and then explain to his son that he was the sacrifice and that God did, after all, require the, the death of the firstborn. And Abraham perhaps said, I didn't realize that this is what, what was necessary, but God commanded it, and we must obey. And then he binds the son, and, and I'm sure there were demonstrations of love. And then he placed the boy on the wood. And the interesting thing is that there, there's no indication here that Isaac did anything other than submit. Abraham was elderly. Isaac was a strong young man. He could have very easily overpowered his father. But he didn't. He submitted. And Abraham laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here am I. And he said, Do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him, for now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. I remember a number of years ago seeing a, a painting by one of the Dutch masters. I couldn't remember who it was, and I couldn't find the painting. Perhaps some of you have seen it and, and will remember, but it, it, it shows the moment when Abraham is ready to plunge the knife into, into Isaac's heart, and the angel is reaching out of heaven, and he has hold of Abraham's hand, and the, and the muscles and veins in Abraham's hand are standing out as he struggles against the arm of, of the angel. And he's captured something there. You see, Abraham was, was determined to follow through. The, the moment of when he was going to slay his son had come, and he was actually going to plunge that knife into his son's heart. And the angel had to, to stop him, you see. And I think he captured the essence of that moment. Abraham was determined. There's no question in his mind. And God saw that. And he stopped him at the last moment. Do nothing to harm him. For now I know that, that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Abraham was willing to give up anything if it impaired his relationship to God. There was nothing he wouldn't forego. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a, a ram caught in the thicket by his horns, and Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. And Abraham called the name of that place, The Lord Will Provide. Remember, he had, he had said early, back, earlier back in verse 8, God will provide for himself a lamb. And now he names the place, The Lord Will Provide. For it is said to this day, In the mount of the Lord it will pre be provided. This became a proverbial statement. And in the mountain of the Lord, at Mount Moriah, where later the temple stood, and later Jesus was crucified, it will be provided. Because it is an interesting fact. That which, whichever site 
whether you take the traditional site of the crucifixion or Gordon's Calvary, both of those sites are connected to Mount Moriah by a spur. They're part of Mount Moriah. And on that mountain, God provided. That became a proverbial statement in Israel. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have, with not, and have not withheld your son, your only son, indeed I will greatly bless you. And I will greatly multiply your descendants as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your descendants shall possess the gate of your enemies. And in your descendants all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. You see, the blessing came after this final act of obedience. It's interesting, as you go through the uh, various statements of the promise up to this point, it's very clear that the promise is unconditional, that God will bless Abraham and he will bless his descendants and through them the whole world will be blessed because God himself had sworn to do so. Whether Abraham participated or not, God would do it. But here it's very clear that Abraham's participation was necessary. It's because you have obeyed that I'm going to bless you. And I think what God is teaching us is that it is true that we have to obey in order to get all that God has for us, but God is going to see to it that we obey. As Paul puts it, he who has begun a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. He keeps working, putting his finger on areas of our life where we're disobedient, until he secures obedience there because he wants to bless us. He wants to make us fruitful, powerful. And you see, what he had to do was strip away from Abraham everything that he trusted in other than God before he could bless him. And that's what God has to do with us. The question we have to ask ourselves is, what's our Isaac? What is it that we're counting on more than God? for enrichment, for fulfillment, for satisfaction in life. You know, we, we as Christians realize that sin will bar us from God's blessing. That goes almost without saying. But we also need to realize that good things in our life can bar us from God's blessing. Anything that we trust, anything that we're counting on to make us attractive, to make us powerful, to give us impact upon people, to make us fruitful. Anything other than God has to be put to death. And so that's the question. It always comes down to that. What's my Isaac? What is my joy apart from God? And whatever it is, it has to go. Maybe it's literally a son or a daughter. Or maybe it's your dream of what a son or daughter ought to be. Most men have some idea, and women too, of the kind of people they want their, their sons and daughters to be. Because somehow we want our sons to make our name great. We feel that our reputation is tied in with them and their greatness, and they disappoint us. They don't choose the vocation that we want them to choose. Or they look a little freaky. And we don't like that because we want them to look a certain way. And you see, what we're worshiping is the dream 
of the kind of son or daughter that will make our name great. And that's precisely what Abraham was inclined to do. And we have to take the knife to that dream. And trust in God to make our name great. Or maybe your Isaac is your dream of a perfect marriage. If you had just had the right kind of spouse, and you dream of the kind of person that would be, and that would fulfill you, and you keep hanging on to that hope, and you're not content with the kind of marriage that you have. And what this passage teaches us is that we have to take the knife to that dream and be content with whatever set of circumstances God has put us in. Maybe it's to be not married at all. Put the knife to that dream and rest in God. Let God satisfy us. Let God make our name great. Let God be the one who enriches us. Or perhaps it's our ambition to make our name great, to make a name for ourselves in business. It may even be a a legitimate desire to achieve a certain position in the world so we'll have an impact upon a particular type of people. That's our dream. And for one reason or another, God takes that dream away. And we have to take a knife to it. I have a good friend back in California who worked for years for Standard Oils, one of these rising young executives who was going to make it big. And all through those years, he kept thinking, when I become vice president of Standard Oil, then I'll have an impact on all the upper echelon of of Standard Oil. And that was his dream. And uh, he never made it. He became an assistant to one of the vice presidents, and he just stayed there for years and years and years. And finally, he realized that he had to take a knife to that dream. That was God's place for him. God might elevate a man, but that's his call. That's his choice. And we need to trust God and not some position or station in life. Or maybe it's some relationship. Maybe it's a person who's come into your life and you know that relationship is not right, but that person fulfills you for the moment and satisfies you. And we need to take the knife to that or some habit or whatever. It can be almost anything. It can be a good thing or it can be a bad thing, but it's something in our life that we trust other than God. It's something that we think will make us powerful, will make us fruitful, will enable us to have some kind of historic impact. But you see, God's the only one we can trust. Anything else we have to be willing to put to death. You know, it's kind of an interesting postlude to this whole thing. As I said, it was on this mount that God did provide. The Lord Jesus was crucified just to the west of the top of Mount Moriah. And uh, there were a lot of things that Isaac experienced that the Lord did not. There were no tender final moments for the Lord Jesus. He stood before his, uh, before the Pharisees and in that trial and it's degraded, spit upon, cursed, struck. And, and as he hung on the cross, there were no tender final thoughts from the Father. He, the Father forsook him because he became the sin bearer. And uh, that's what's behind the Lord's cry. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And, of course, with the son, he was, in the case of the father's son, 
he was not spared. Paul says, he who spared not his only son, probably thinking of this event. God spared Isaac, but he didn't spare his own son. And that's where it's provided. See, it's the cross that makes possible the cutting off of the old life. That's where provision is made. That's where the power comes from to put to death anything that stands between you and a wholehearted and authentic love of God. You know, there are two aspects to the cross. There is the the fact that Christ died for us, and that takes care of the guilt of sin. There is a second phase of the cross which often is not it's not mentioned, but it's just as significant, if not more so, and that is our identification with Christ. We died with Christ so that the old life and the power of the old life and the habits of the old life and the patterns of the old life are put to death. And they don't have to dominate us any longer. We can put them away. And so what we need to do is ask ourselves, what is the Isaac in my life that keeps me from being what God wants me to be, from being a source of blessing? And then act decisively, as Abraham did, to put it to death once for all. And the result will be for us, as it was for Abraham, that we'll be a source of blessing because we have obeyed his voice. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that that we have this uh, great example here of a man who was willing to put to death the thing that he loved more than anything else in the world because he loved you more. And uh, this was the thing that would make his name great. Isaac was the one that gave him joy and fulfillment. It made him feel like a man. And yet, uh, Lord, he was willing to, to put Isaac to death because he loved you with all of his heart. And he knew that, that it's only in that kind of wholehearted devotion to you that he would find himself. And we thank you that as you told the disciples, there is no one who has given away anything who doesn't receive back a hundredfold. You just love to give and give and give. And when we we put to death the things that satisfy us, you become our source of satisfaction. We thank you for that. Give us the courage to do so. In Jesus' name, amen.